So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found again he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayal. Morning all. Nice to see you all. Um, I'm, I think I know everyone, but I'm Johnny, one of the pastors here, if, you, if I've not met you. Um, to spare myself all the questions at the end of this, uh, yes, yesterday I was in the sun for four hours, and yes, my face took a hit. Um, so uh, we've got that one over and done with. Um, if I've not met you, uh, it's probably likely that you've, as Grace has explained well to us, we've been in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, over the last six months. Um, and basically we pick up the story today, if you just keep that, that open in front of you, we pick up the story today on the Thursday night before the Friday where Jesus goes to the cross. We saw last week how Jesus has spent his last supper, his last meal with his disciples. And then we see in verse 32 here that he's come to this garden called Gethsemane. Right? And Gethsemane was basically like a bit of a wild camping spot. So people would come to the Passover feast and they'd basically pitch a tent in Gethsemane and spend the night. But as I'm sure you're, you're aware, this is going to be no cute little camping trip for, for Jesus in the foothills of Jerusalem. This is going to be like the scene of huge anguish, or I think is probably the most heart-wrenching episode of all the Gospels. God the Son in prayerful concern and anguish before the Father as he thinks about his impending death the next day. Now, people get the wrong end of the stick when it comes to Gethsemane. I don't know if you've ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar, that kind of, uh, was it Andrew Lloyd Webber? Or, or, yeah, yeah, some people are nodding. Um, well, it, it, in that, there's this scene in Gethsemane um, where, where Jesus kind of belts out his raw emotion to God. And I think the, the lyrics of that song basically betray everything that's wrong with how people understand what's happening in this garden. Let me just give you a, a little snippet from, uh, from the song. Um, it goes like this. Uh, Jesus says, Father, I have changed. I mean, we could leave it there, couldn't we, as, in terms of a theological error, but we'll, we'll go on. I've changed. I'm not as sure as when we started. Then I was inspired. Now I'm sad and tired. Show me there's a reason for your wanting me to die. You're far too keen on where and how, but not so hot on why. <laughs> so... According to this, basically, by this stage in the Garden of Gethsemane, in this, by this stage in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has no clue who he is and what he's doing. So, so basically, we see this kind of raw emotion in Gethsemane as him being completely confused. Like, what's going on, Lord? But actually, given everything we've seen so far, 
throughout the Gospel of Mark. We know that this is a load of rubbish, right? You know, we could go to any one of like, loads of places, but you remember the famous verse in Mark 10 where Jesus said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he'd come to do. And this Gethsemane passage actually shows exactly that. In fact, I'll I'll throw out a bold claim. Those of you who know me well know that I'm prone to doing this. But a bold claim is this. In Gethsemane, we have as clear a demonstration as any of the gospel. The good news of Jesus that was promised throughout the Old Testament, that was proclaimed through Jesus' ministry, and which was preached after his death and resurrection across the New Testament and beyond. So we, we speak a lot about the Garden of Gethsemane, but actually what I want to see today is the gospel of Gethsemane. God's good news of salvation showcased as clearly as ever in this garden. And we're going to see three things. I, I, I must admit at this point, I vowed that I would never use alliteration for sermon subheadings. Okay, but here we go. The person of the gospel, we're going to see. Secondly, we're going to see the picture of the gospel. And thirdly, we'll see the power of the gospel. It makes you want to vom, doesn't it? But there we go. It works. So the person of the gospel, number one. I think basically the reason people get Gethsemane so wrong is because they get the person of the gospel wrong. They get Jesus Christ wrong. Because Christians all know that Jesus was fully God. We argue that to the hilt, we know that. But sometimes we forget that he was also fully human. He was fully man. And so when we hit passages like this, where Jesus' raw humanity is on show... We kind of be like, well, I thought, I thought this guy was God, right? Why is he, why is he so emotional? Why is, surely he knows how this is going to turn out. Because we're prone to thinking about Jesus as a kind of superman who didn't really experience life like us at all. We think of him basically as like a human body with God trapped inside. Not, not, not a real man with all the emotions and the experiences that we all know so well. No, the Bible teaches that God, that Jesus was fully God, but also fully man, fully human. And remembering this allows us to read the emotion of Gethsemane without getting confused, without thinking, do you know what? Jesus hit some kind of midlife crisis. He doesn't know who he is. So in that light, have a look at um, Jesus' raw emotion in verse 33. Have that open if you could. Verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Deeply distressed and troubled. You know what this feels like. That gut-wrenching anxiety, that fear, your heart beats faster, you're scared. Verse 34, Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is overwhelmed. That sounds pretty human, doesn't it? If I was about to die a violent death within 24 hours, you know what, I'd feel pretty overwhelmed, wouldn't you? And that's just the physical pain. God the Son is about to be torn apart and endure the spiritual agony of being pulled apart from his Father. He's overwhelmed. 
And so at the end of verse 34, Jesus asks his disciples to keep watch and pray because he's going to go and do what we all should do when we feel overwhelmed. Verse 35, look at it. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed. He prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. You know what? I'm so glad Jesus prayed this. Sometimes, I don't know if you've heard this, but I hear Christians often slavishly kind of showing how the apostles never said for change in your, never pray for change in your circumstances, only that you'd be holy in your circumstances. And I think that's a helpful corrective on the whole. And yet here, we see Jesus, the Son of God, in pain, doing what human beings all naturally do when they are suffering. They are crying out to God. He is crying out to God to change his circumstances. Let this hour, this suffering, this pain pass from me. Make it go, Lord. Bring me out of this. Take home point. Jesus knows your pain. He knows what it feels like to cry out to God, to take suffering and away and for that pain to remain. Did you notice that? God didn't answer Jesus' prayer with a big yes. He went to the cross. Like us, he had to endure suffering before glory, cross before crown. And this helps us, don't you think, to endure our own suffering? Famous verses from Hebrews 4. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are humans, just as we are human, but he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, being a Christian in suffering doesn't mean putting on a pretense that everything's great. It means approaching God with confidence that he hears us. It means being able to fall on our knees before God, pleading with him that this suffering would go, and knowing that even if it remains, the glory of heaven still awaits us. And we can do this because of Jesus, who, as the prophet Isaiah says, was a man who took up our sufferings. See, this is the person of the gospel, a human being like you and me. We also see here, it's not like, oh, here's his human part, but the rest of his ministry, he was God. No, we also see here the truth that Jesus is fully God. Look at the beginning of verse 36. Look how he addresses God. He says this, Abba, Father. Abba. It literally means Daddy. Some of you know that. It's a term of intimacy that God's people at the time would never have dreamt of using to describe God. But what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us an insight into the relationship that he's had in perfect love and unity with God the Father since before eternity began. In John's Gospel of of Gethsemane, Jesus actually says this, Father, that's Abba, I want those you have given me, that's Christians, to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus the man is also Jesus the eternal God. And do you know what? We actually see that further on in that verse. Have a look again at verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Right, and some have been scratching their heads over this verse, particularly over the last couple of years. We won't get into that debate. But they kind of ask at this point, well, doesn't this show that Jesus wanted something different to God? If Jesus was God, how could, his, how could he want something different to what God wanted? Does that make, make sense? That's the question. But actually, Jesus' words here, I think, show the very opposite. I think they show here just as clearly that he's God as, as any other verses. You know, think about it. As fully man, like you and I, Jesus is petrified of his own violent murder. Of course, he's a, he's a human being. Who wouldn't be petrified of their murder? So in one sense, of course, his will isn't to die. But it's also true here that, 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 that Jesus, the Son of God, willed to die in order to obey the will of his Father. He says effectively, do you know what? My will is your will. So far from Jesus wanting something different to God the Father, this is actually a beautiful example of how Jesus' human will acts in perfect harmony with and in perfect submission to the will of God the Father. Something that often isn't the case for sinful human beings like you and like me. You know, we... I don't know, maybe it's just me, I don't know, but I rebel against God's will for my life all the time. I don't want his will over my life, both in the ways that I sin, but also in my circumstances. You know, how often have you found yourself praying in the heat of pain and suffering? Do you know what? Unreservedly, Lord, I want what you want for my life. If you want this suffering, I want that. You see, Jesus is perfectly human, but unlike us, he's the sinless man who doesn't rebel against his father's will. The man who shared our exact humanity, but, Hebrews 4, he didn't sin. He was the God-man, the one who gave up the eternal glory and divine intimacy of heaven to come down to this mess to take up our sufferings and bear the anguish of a Roman cross. So here's my question. Are you amazed by this Jesus Do you see him in all his humanity and divine glory this morning? And are you drawn to worship him? Let me kindly say that if you're in no way moved to worship this Jesus, then you haven't really grasped the person of the gospel. And if you haven't grasped the person of the gospel, you probably haven't grasped the gospel because the gospel is all about Jesus. Friends, seeing Jesus here in all of his humanity and all of his Divinity should surely reawaken our love and worship and praise for him, the person of the gospel. So that's the first one, or the first P. (laughs) Second one is the picture of the gospel. You've seen the person of the gospel, the picture of the gospel, because of course there's more to the gospel than Jesus taking our sufferings. And, and we begin to see that in verse 37. Remember that Jesus commanded his closest disciples to keep watch and pray. Okay, He's going to go pray. You guys keep watch and you pray. And then have a look at verse 37. We pick it up there. <laughs> I love this verse. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said uh, to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Well, you know how this goes. You can picture the scene. They've just had the Last Supper. They've like, they're like stuffed to the brim. They've got that like post-roast feeling. You know the one? And they're like, okay, they're kicking back in the long grass and Jesus has asked us to pray and they're like, okay, right. Heavenly Father, just thank you for tonight. And they kind of feel their eyes going. You know that feeling? And then they're, you know, and soon enough they're completely gone. 
And Jesus comes and he finds them sleeping. So the point is that they'd failed to obey their master's command. And that's really, really important. And for those of you who were here when Johnny preached on Mark 13, you'll remember that Jesus uses this, these metaphors of staying awake versus falling asleep uh, to, to, to almost talk about our spiritual state. So he's not just talking physically. So for example, at the end of Mark 13, Jesus talking of his return says this, if I come suddenly, don't let me find you sleeping, stay awake. You see, the disciples' physical sleep is actually representative of a much bigger problem. Their spiritual sleep, their sin. So just as we get a little insight in in the Garden of Gethsemane into the person of the gospel, we also get a little insight into his followers. They're sinners, like you and me. You know, before we were followers of Jesus, the Bible actually describes us as spiritually dead. But even now, as his followers, having been made alive with Christ... We're still prone to falling asleep, spiritually speaking, aren't we? We're we're still prone to sin, to disobedience. I wonder if this whole thing going on, you've got a garden, you've got God's command, and you've got disobedience. I wonder if this is like ringing any bells for you. I know about another Bible garden where this happened. Okay, it's, it's the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Almost replayed again, when Adam and Eve failed to obey God's command. And, and, and when Adam and Eve did that, do you know what? God promised that there was going to be coming a, a saviour who would, who would bring forgiveness for sin. And do you know what? Here's our man. Here's that forgiving saviour. Look at what happens in verse 38. Does Jesus just send them away condemned, having lost all patience with them? And, and any hope of change? No, look at verse 38. <laughs> he says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit's willing but the flesh is weak. Like literally, he comes, he dusts them down and says, right guys, let's go again. Let's go again. Here's the same command I just gave you. You see, Jesus knows our sin and he came to forgive us and to give us hope of change. With Jesus' forgiveness, failure is never final and never fatal. And how do we know that? Well, in verse 39 and 40, he goes away, prays, and he comes back, and the same thing has happened again. Right, have a look at 39 and 40. Once more, Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Is this not a picture of the Christian life? You know how this goes. I know how this goes. You keep looking at pornography and promise you won't do it again, and then Jesus finds you clicking on that site. You've repented of your, your gambling addiction, but here you are again, back at the casino. You, you've repented and said sorry for lying again, or manipulating again, or being angry at your spouse, or your friends, or your parents again, and here you are getting angry, manipulating, and cheating and lying again. Jesus has caught you again. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And like the disciples, verse 40, we didn't know what to say to him. We don't know what to say to him. But Jesus dusts them down, offers forgiveness and says, right guys, let's go again. Let's go again. 
What happens here in Gethsemane is a picture of God's forgiveness of us in the gospel. But you know what? As closer, as, as we look a bit closer, the picture gets even more clearer. That was a double comparative. It gets more, it becomes even clearer. There you go. Because the gospel doesn't say that we're forgiven just because Jesus is really patient. He's a good guy. He's patient. No, that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that we're forgiven, yes, because Jesus died for our sins, which we'll go on to see. But do you know what? We're also forgiven because Jesus gives us his perfect moral and spiritual record. He gives us his righteousness. And do you know what? He never failed to obey like these disciples. Jesus lived a perfect life in order to credit his perfect moral record, his perfection, his righteousness into our spiritual accounts before God. He was our moral and spiritual substitute. And you know what? We see this very thing happening in Gethsemane. Ask yourself this to illustrate the point. What should the disciples be doing right now? I don't know, maybe someone shout out. What should the disciples be doing? Praying. Yeah, they should be praying. What are they doing? They're sleeping. Yeah. Right now, next question. What's Jesus doing? Right? He's out there, awake, praying. Do you see what's going on? Jesus is living that perfect life that these guys and us in our sin fail to live time and time again. He's fulfilling his command for us. He's achieving a righteousness on our behalf in order to give it to us freely. And you know what? It's not just about our failure to pray. Well, that's in view, right? But it's not just about our failure to pray. Jesus loved other people perfectly in order to give his perfect other-centered love to us, his self-centered followers. Jesus never looked at a woman lustfully in order to give his purity to us, his lust-inflamed followers. Jesus worshipped God perfectly in order to give this perfect worship to us who worship money, security, possessions, legal highs, comfort, and everything else that we addicts crave. This is the gospel. Well, Jesus took our sin, we took his righteousness. Do you know that if you're a Christian this morning, you have Jesus' perfect righteousness. Would you believe what the Apostle Paul says about himself and all Christians turning to Christ? Uh, We do not have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law. That's from obedience, like the disciples, but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God, that's a gift from God on the basis of faith in Jesus alone. See, if you want to rely on your own righteousness, do you know what? You'll never be able to stand up before a holy God. But Gethsemane is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what really happens in salvation. While we're fast asleep, contributing nothing, not one jot of obedience, Jesus is out there achieving a righteousness on our behalf and a salvation in order to give that salvation to us freely. Have you forgotten that this morning? Are you weighed down by the burden of trying to impress God? Like the disciples, have you failed again and again, not knowing what to say to Jesus this morning? Or are you really proud because you think, well, do you know what, this whole Christianity thing, I've got this licked, I've got this righteousness that has come through all my prayer and my Bible reading and my knowledge of the Bible and blah, blah, blah. 
Well, do you know what? Well, praise God that here we see a picture of the gospel that through faith in him, Jesus has given you his perfect moral and spiritual perfection, his righteous record. You are spotless in God's sight in Christ. And so he sings over you and over your life in the same way he sings over his son. This is the good news of the gospel. We need it again, don't we? It's the gospel of Gethsemane. So there you go, picture of, of the, the person of the gospel, picture of the gospel. And thirdly, the power of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Effectively, it's just a third P. So um, it's, by, by the power of the gospel, I mean the event on which the gospel hinges, okay, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, look, it's, the cross is throughout Gethsemane, but look at verse 41. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. In verse 42, Judas turns up. He's betrayed and he goes off to be killed. You see, there's no forgiveness for the disciples. There's no forgiveness for us without Jesus being given into the hands of human sinners like us and being nailed to that cross. Ultimately, the Gethsemane, the gospel of Gethsemane is all about the anguish and anticipation of the cross. I wonder though if Jesus' anguish and fear of the cross is actually quite different to what you think it is. What is it that Jesus actually says in this passage that he's scared about? Does he say these were really scared about the nails and the hammer or the 39 lashes or the crown of thorns that are pushed into his head or the heavy cross that he's going to carry or the, 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 the battering that he got from the Roman guards or the hatred and the mockery that he got from the people who cried crucify him. Is that what he's scared of? Does he mention that? No. I'm sure those things were a, a source of huge anxiety for him. He was a human. But no, what does he mention in verse 36? Abba Father, he said, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Obvious question. What's the cup? Throughout the Bible, God describes his perfect anger, his wrath against human sin in terms of a cup full to the brim waiting to be poured out in his perfect justice. I'll give you one example. It's one of many. Jeremiah 25 says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see, God is absolutely fuming at sin. Sin isn't a bit of a boo-boo here and there. It's all out human rebellion against our good and loving and eternal God who loved us and gave everything. And do you know what the Bible says? That we're all sinners. We're all infected by it. Sin is the greatest act of injustice against a just God. And a just God cannot sit and sweep that under the carpet in the same way as a good human judge can't sit and let the murder sentence of a criminal just be, do you know what? Don't worry about it, mate. Go free. It's not a good human judge. It's an awful one. So here's God, our perfect God, who's wrathful against sin. And do you know what? It's a, it's a frightful thing to stand before a holy judge, let alone bear the full force of his wrath in hell. It's a frightful thing. 
So does this make sense of Jesus' anguish? As he prays before his father, do you see what's happening above the fear of the pain? Jesus is about to bear the full weight of God's just wrath against every sin of his people ever committed and ever will be committed. God himself in his son bears his own wrath in our place. Famous verse, you might know it, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered. God the Son suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's me. And that's you in order to bring you to God. This might be the the first time you've heard God is angry at your sin. It might be the first time you've ever heard that Jesus took God's anger against your sin so that you'd never, ever, ever have to ask yourself if you're going to be punished. So you'd never, ever have to ask yourself, have I earned God's favour? No, Jesus earned your favour or his favour on your behalf and he died your death on your behalf. You never have to ask yourself that question. That's how much God loves you. That's what he did for you. Again, famous verses which illustrate this from the Old Testament, talking of Christ. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was crushed for our sins. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. You know, we can argue to the hilt that we don't believe in a God who could possibly be angry at my sin, at your sin. But you know what? If we do this, we probably don't believe God when he says in the Bible that we're sinners, like these disciples. We fail to obey his commands. That our sin is deserving of judgment. And do you know what? If we, if we believe this, we don't, we're not going to feel the need to come to Jesus for forgiveness, are we? And if this is us this morning, Jesus' harrowing words in John 3.36 must surely stir the waters of repentance in us. As he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath, God's cup doesn't go to Jesus, but goes to us. It remains on them. So God is angry at sin. Do you know what? Jesus has gone to the cross to take upon himself that anger, so you would never, ever have to. And for all of you who have given your sin to him, would you please, this morning, believe that your sin is paid for? The Christian life is spent... Is this really real? It's gone. Past, present, future. No condemnation. Jesus drank the cup to the dregs. And so would you believe again what the Apostle Paul says is true for you, that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, We may live together with him. Oh, how this would have been music to the ears of those sleepy disciples. And all of us who are cowering in fear of death. Jesus has gone ahead of us and died on our behalf. He drank to the dregs the cup filled with the wine of God's wrath to offer us the wine of communion with him, which we'll celebrate in the Lord's Supper pretty uh, pretty short on, pretty soon after this. See, this is the cross, the power of the gospel the gospel of Gethsemane, we could say. 
So as we, as we draw to a close then, um, let me just get practical for a second. You might think, you know what, that's really crude to get practical in such an emotional passage. But you know what, if we, I, I think if we think that, we've missed something quite, quite important. We missed a detail, which I specifically left until now. You probably noticed in verse 32, right, Jesus takes his disciples, all of his disciples, to Gethsemane. But do you see what he did in verse 33? So they're there, right? Then he takes three of those disciples somewhere else, within earshot of hearing his prayer. So in verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. So Jesus specifically takes his three closest pals to almost witness this prayer. Strange. But in Mark's Gospel, as we've seen other times, Jesus takes these three aside when he's got something very specific, or practical, you could say, to teach them. Think about um, when, when Jesus took these three disciples up the mountain, when he, when he was going to be transformed or transfigured. Yeah? So he wanted them to, 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 to see his glory because they, he wanted them to see that he is God's son. And many think, and I think I agree, that he, he, he does this. He takes these three disciples because these three disciples are going to be those three who would go on to be the main pillars of the church after his death and resurrection. And importantly, because of that role they play, they're going to be the three who have to endure the most intense suffering, persecution, and martyrdom in certain cases. And so Jesus wants them, and us by extension, to see and learn something very specific about what it means to follow him. It's like his boot camp in the Christian life. And it's this, I quote Acts 14.22, which is in Acts after the death and resurrection. That we must go through many hardships, much suffering, to enter the kingdom of God. Being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be painful. It was for these three, it will be for us. We're going to have our own Gethsemanes in this world as we follow the crucified Saviour towards his kingdom. It's going to happen. And he knows the temptation for these guys to buckle under that pressure, under that pain, is going to be huge to turn away from him. It's going to be massive. And let's face it, this is a live issue for us all. I think a majority of us who've been Christians for any length of time will know people who have professed faith in Christ and then turned away from Jesus the moment of suffering here. Even in this tiny little insignificant, insignificant collection of God's people, in this one location, in this one city, we have people here who have the pain of depression, the pain of singleness, the anxiety of where our next meal is going to be coming from, chronic illness, grief after losing family members, the ongoing temptations of sin, persecution for preaching Jesus, loneliness, burglaries of our house, the guilt of disobeying the Lord, the list could go on. That's here, in this tiny little collection. And in Gethsemane, Jesus literally pulls his closest disciples aside, and by extension us, and he shows them what it looks like to persevere to the end. And so if you're, you're still with me, here's the summary of Jesus' lesson. Verse 38, look at it again. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Keep watch. Stay awake, Christian, so that you don't fall into temptation. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, I think in the context, he's warning against the temptation to fall away from him because of suffering. 
That's why he's taken these three aside. Isn't that what Satan wants you to do? He wants all of us to do that. Wasn't it Satan who just a few chapters earlier tried to convince these very three disciples that they could enter God's kingdom and take up God's crown without first carrying a cross? But if there was no way for Jesus to enter his glory without first taking up his cross, how much more for us as children and followers will we enter God's kingdom through many trials and many sufferings? And when we suffer, how easy it is for our spiritual eyes to feel heavy, to start falling asleep, to start disobeying the Lord Jesus, to give up on his commands, to stop coming to church, to think, you know what, God doesn't hear me. He doesn't love me. And here Jesus says, comes to us, listen guys, stay awake. Stay awake so you don't fall into temptation. That temptation to sin ultimately leads to death. Stay awake, stay alert. Keep fighting the slog of the Christian life through your grief, through your pain, through your confusion, through your fear, through your being overwhelmed. Keep fighting. Stay awake. You know, perhaps some of you, even here today under the heat of pain, now can even feel your eyes closing. You can feel sin and Satan trying to convince you that God isn't good. Why hasn't he taken away your suffering? I've been praying for ten years, Lord. Why is it still here? And so the slow deceit of Satan's lies creep in. Perhaps this week even, do you know what? You've failed so many times already. You've fallen asleep so many times already. That you think, do you know, I can't even call myself a Christian anymore. Perhaps you're not falling asleep. Perhaps you're just gone. You're in the, you're in the long grass. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus comes to you this morning, having clothed you with his perfect righteousness, having, having forgiven every sin, he comes not to condemn you, but to dust you down like his disciples in this garden. He says, come on, friend, stay awake. Pray that you'd keep going and come out the other side. I've done it before you. You can trust me. And then, do you know what? This this afternoon, you find yourself sleeping again. And there he is again, dusting you down. Saying, come on. Spurring you on to the end. You know, all three of us relatively young pastors haven't been doing this job for a very long time at all. And yet, when I look out this morning, I know... How many of you are broken and battered and bruised? You're wondering maybe if you can even persevere through this Gethsemane. How can you do this for the rest of your life? Well, this morning Jesus brings you into his inner circle of friends and says that with his constant pursuit of us, his righteousness, his forgiveness, with prayer to stay awake, do you know what? You're going to finish your life spiritually awake ready to ditch that cross you've held the whole of your life to take up the crown of glory. And as much as I know of the pain and suffering out there, many of you will know the pain and the Gethsemane that Joanna and myself have have walked through since our beautiful little girl Edith was taken from us and and Joanna's mum just a few weeks later. Our Gethsemane is today, it's Mother's Day. So as I close, I just want to read a few lines from a card that Joanna gave me a few months ago, not to hold her up as some hero, but to illustrate what this looks like, to dispel the myth that we're all walking around as smiley, happy people, that they don't know my pain, the one that I'm going through. So if this helps, 
This is what Jana writes. There have been times over the last few months when I haven't known how to carry on in life, getting out of bed, looking after Joss, getting to church or just doing the everyday of this life. Sometimes the grief has been so overwhelming that I can't feel anything but darkness. But our Father God is gracious, and this morning I read Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may continue throughout the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. I was remembering the joy and the perfection that will come in the morning of the new creation, even as we persevere throughout the night of this world. I want the night to finish, and I find myself praying, come Lord Jesus, come. See, this world is where we have experienced, and we are experiencing, and we will experience the night of Gethsemane. Sorry. But friends, along with those three disciples, Jesus shows us this morning that along with the night, the morning's coming. It's going to be glorious with him, so stay awake. Lift your weary eyes to Jesus at our perfect righteousness, our sin-crushing, Satan-defeating, wrath-bearing substitute. Lift your eyes to see our great high priest who's gone through Gethsemane, who's gone through the cross on our behalf, and who is in every way able to empathize with our suffering. Lift your eyes to him who will bring us, his weary and sleepy disciples, safely home into his kingdom. Shall I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he wasn't a superman, but he was a man. He knew our suffering, he took up our sufferings, he died for our sin, he gave us his righteousness. Father God, you've given us everything we need to keep going in the Christian life as we look to you. And Father, we pray for us weary and sleepy disciples that we would see Christ afresh this morning that he would keep us going through the pain and anguish of the many Gethsemanes that we have to bear before taking up our cross, before taking up our crown in glory. Father God, lift our eyes to him this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it, and for his glory. Amen.